Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 5 today. So find Mark chapter 5, and I will read starting in verse 21 in just a minute. I'm always a little bit nervous and hesitant to do this, but I'm going to ask. Because last week I said, if you don't get anything else, please get this. Does anybody remember what the this was? Anybody who was here last week? Anybody at all? What if I help you and get you started with it? There are no... All right. Gail got it. Thank you, Gail. I'm glad. There are no hopeless cases with Jesus. And last week, the hopeless case was someone who was possessed by many demons. So spiritually speaking, a hopeless case. Today, we're going to see two more hopeless cases, but these are more in the physical realm. One who was sick, one who was sick and then died. So we're continuing this theme for the chapter of hopeless cases. But we need to remember that to Jesus, nothing is a hopeless case. God can do all his holy will, right? And in this case, he rescued, he saved, he healed, he restored these two individuals. In the larger section that includes the end of chapter 4, I've shown you this outline a few times now, but Jesus is showing that he has power over, he is victorious over danger. Remember the storm at sea on the lake? Demons, the legion of demons possessing that man. And then disease, we see that today, and death. He is in charge. He is able to defeat any and all of those foes. So let's read, I know this is a little bit longer passage, even a little bit longer than last week, but it's two stories in one, so I'm going to do my best to cover them together. Would you stand please, and I'll read our passage for this morning. This is Mark chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you Well, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. 
Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the words, a word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, you are amazing, God. Your works, your ways, and your timing are good. And we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for giving us these two accounts in this gospel to show us your power over disease, to show us your power over death. And Lord, your power gives us hope this morning. Hope even when we feel hopeless. Hope even when some friend or loved one is facing something that seems hopeless. We know that you are the God of hope. So would you show us yourself in this passage this morning? Show us ourselves in this passage this morning. I pray that you would strengthen me mentally, that I would be clear in what I say, that your words would come through loud and clear, and that you would give each of us ears and hearts that are ready to listen and obey, and that you would get glory to yourself through our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a passage that I didn't feel like just kind of the, the main ideas leaped out at me. There's, there are many that I think you could bring out, maybe some that you've seen, maybe that you've studied before. But the three, as I prayed it over, as I studied it, the three ideas that I'd like to focus on this morning with you is that number one, Jesus is not hindered by sickness or uncleanness or death. They don't slow him down. They don't stop his will being done. They don't hinder him in any way. What does that mean for us? It means that anyone can come to Jesus at any time. The question is, will we? Number two, Jesus saves by faith in him. And what we need to remember there is that the object of our faith is more important than the amount of our faith or the maturity of our faith. We have in this story 
the leader of the synagogue, the woman with the issue of blood. And in some ways, they don't seem to understand what Jesus can do. They don't know what he's capable of. Their faith is certainly imperfect. You could even say it's immature. But that's not what's important. What's important is that they are expressing faith in Jesus. And that is the faith that allows him to work. That is the faith by which he chooses to work. Third point, Jesus heals and restores according to his own plan and timing. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So what that means practically is that not everyone is healed or restored to life. There were probably other funerals going on in Capernaum that day. He didn't go through and raise all of them back to life. There were certainly other sick people in that crowd. There may have been other people who tried to grab his garments. Not all of them were healed. But he did heal and restore according to his plan and in his timing. He did it his way. Like we saw in, back in chapter 3, this section has a sandwich structure. It has bookends. It starts a story and then it interrupts for another story and then it comes back to the other one. So that's part of what's going on here. We see the story of Jairus' daughter that begins and ends this section. And then in the middle we have the woman who had the bleeding issue. And what we have here, when I was in undergrad and especially grad school, I had some professors who wanted to give us essay questions of compare and contrast so-and-so. You could do that here. That's not my intention. This is not an academic exercise this morning. But as you go, consider in what ways was Jairus and this woman, in what ways were they alike? In what ways were they different? Because God also doesn't limit his miracles to certain classes of people or genders or even races, although these both would have been Jewish. He meets the needs of people who come to him in faith. What we see are two needy people who realized they were needy and brought their need to Jesus. And they both found help. They both found answers to their requests through Jesus, through his power, through his mercy. So let's go back to verse 21 and work our way through. It says there that now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him and he was by the sea. He crossed over again. He probably came back to Capernaum. We know that he crossed over and delivered the man who was demon-possessed, and then they went back. So they arrive at the other side, back in Jewish territory. We think probably Capernaum. And it's not unusual for a great multitude to gather. We keep seeing that pattern, don't we? And perhaps he was getting ready to teach them there beside the lake. But instead, verse 22 says, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. One of the rulers of the synagogue. This was a layman. He wasn't being paid to do this, but he was an official, a leader, an elder of the synagogue. And he was in charge of making sure the building was ready and that there was someone to teach to read so planning the services that's the type of thing that he did he likely was a well-known and well-respected 
member of the community. Probably everybody knew him. When he came up and started talking to Jesus, they would have known who he was without anybody telling them. But what does this man do? He comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and begins begging. Now, if you count what we did last week and today, there are three different people who come and they fall at Jesus' feet. The demon-possessed man, that's what he came. He came running, and he fell at Jesus' feet. We have Jairus now, this well-respected member of the community, an elder, a ruler of the synagogue, and what does he do? He does the same thing. He comes, and he bows down at the feet of Jesus. Several sources told me that these synagogue officials were closely tied to the Pharisees. Well, what's going on with the Pharisees? They're already ticked with Jesus for the way he's breaking the Sabbath laws, the way he's healing on the Sabbath, and they're already plotting to destroy him, to kill him. So there was likely, I can't prove this, but there was likely a good deal of pressure on Jairus. His friends, his colleagues, the other elders, the Pharisees would have said, had nothing to do with Jesus. So why would he do that? Why would he risk his reputation? He is desperate. He loved his daughter. He doesn't know what else to do. Think of what's going through his mind. His daughter is sick enough that they believe she's dying. You who are parents, how do you decide what to do? Do you, do you go to the man who may be able to work a miracle and heal her? What if you're not there and she dies? What is going through his mind? He is a desperate man. And he comes and he bows down to show respect for, to worship Jesus. He decided that he was more concerned about getting his daughter the help she needed than what the other people thought about him. What did he expect Jesus to do? I'd like you to come to my house. I'd like you to lay your hands on her so that she'll be healed. She will live. That shows great faith. He believed Jesus could come and heal. Now, did Jesus have to come to his house in order to heal the little girl? No. Did he have to lay his hands on her? No. But in his mind, that's what Jairus thought Jesus should do. So he comes and he requests that. Jesus responded to the faith that Jairus had. Do you have faith in Jesus? Are you desperate enough to come to Jesus? What would it take for you to be desperate enough to come to Jesus? Verse 24, just a, a typical Mark summary. I'm going to advance the story. So Jesus went with him. Don't know whether Jesus said anything to him, but Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So we have this multitude. They're almost like an extra character in most of these stories. The multitude said, we're going to. Here's another miracle. We're going to get to see it happen. Here we go. And they throng him. Mark uses that term. Nobody else does. Thronged is the idea of suffocating pressure on Jesus and keeping him from moving. If you've ever been in a very crowded place, an amusement park or a concert or a, or a professional or college sports game, and everybody's trying to get to the exits, you're not going anywhere. There are people hemming you in on every side, and you're not really making much progress. That's what this would have been like. Everybody wants to go to Jairus' house with Jesus. And it would have kept him from getting there very quickly. So the entire group, including Jesus and Jairus, and the disciples at this point are moving toward Jairus' house and it must have felt like it was at a snail's pace to Jairus. Can't we move any faster? Can't we just leave them all behind? May have been going through his mind. 
But worse yet in Jairus' mind, now the whole thing stops. Verse 25, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So while Jesus was on the way to heal Jairus' daughter, or so Jairus expected, we have this simultaneous event that pops into the story. And it's about this woman. So this is, we're, we're approaching the middle of the sandwich structure that we are dealing with in this section. And it says, a certain woman. Think about what her life was like. Think about what she had experienced socially and financially and medically and emotionally and spiritually. What does it say about her? That she had a flow of blood. Do we know quite what that was? No. But it was something female-related, most likely. Um, some people think it was a chronic menstrual disorder. Other people think it was a uterine hemorrhage. Other people think she may have had a tumor. But for whatever reason, she was bleeding. And she had been bleeding for 12 years, nonstop. What did that mean for her? Well, if she had a husband, he would have divorced her. If she had children, she wouldn't have been able to see them or be near them. She was far from Jerusalem, but she could no longer enter the women's court at the temple because she was ceremonially unclean. More pertinent to her situation, she couldn't be in the synagogue. She couldn't go into the synagogue. Moreover, anytime she was in public, she had to let everybody know, I am unclean. So in many ways, I see parallels between her and the leper back in chapter 1. Socially speaking, the way we normally live our lives, her life was over. She had no life. And this had been going on for 12 years. She was likely physically weak. She very well could have been anemic from constant blood loss. And no doubt she was mentally and emotionally exhausted. We might say she was at her wit's end. I could easily imagine that. How is she doing medically? It says here that she suffered many things from many physicians. It was common in difficult medical cases back then that you would go to different doctors and different doctors would have, everybody would have a conflicting idea of what you need to do. There are times this happens today. Only in this case, some of them were harmful. Some of them, instead of making her better, made her worse. And as she went to doctor after doctor, and we would say specialist after specialist, and this clinic and that clinic, she was getting nowhere. In fact, she was going from bad to worse. And it says at the end of this little section, she had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She's given all the material possessions she has, all the financial means she has, she has spent in trying to get some relief, trying to get better, trying to get her life back. So now she's broke. John Phillips said she's bleeding, broken, and bankrupt. And where does she turn? She turns to Jesus. Again, I ask you, are you desperate enough to come to Jesus? 
what would make you desperate enough to come to Jesus? Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. When it says garment there, it's talking about the outer edge of his outer garment or cloak. And in that way, she could come up and touch him, but he might not even feel it. That's the idea. And when it says, she said, to us, that's a one-time act. No, she's saying over and over. There are times you have to talk to yourself or talk yourself into doing something that you know you should or you think you should. The Fireproof movie came out probably a decade ago now, but I, one of the lines that stood out of that movie was, you don't follow your heart. You have to lead your heart. And we have to do that because there are things that pop into our heads that we shouldn't do. But there are times we know this is the right thing to do. This is the best co course of action. This is all I can do. And we still have to keep psyching ourselves up in order to do it. I'm scared. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. And you have the doubts coming to you. Well, that won't work or, or nothing will happen or he'll get mad at me in this case. Whatever was going through her mind, she kept telling herself, no, this is what I have to do. This is all I can do. She kept telling herself, if only I can touch, if I can get up to him in the crowd, if I can touch his clothes, if I can, and it really means grab onto, if I can just grab onto, maybe it was the tassel of, of his, that's what the other gospels suggest, the tassel that all righteous Jewish men wore, if I could just grab that, I know this is a righteous man, I would be healed. And that's what she's thinking, and that's what she's telling herself over and over. Her idea was that she would come and touch his clothes and be healed, and then she could just blend back into the crowd. Why? Why was she so intent on doing this secretively? She, I'm just going to come get my healing, and I'm going to leave. Because she wasn't supposed to be there. If anybody in the crowd, uh, some commentators think that she may have been from a different area, because if she had been from Capernaum, they would have recognized her and stayed away from her and made her get out of the crowd, stay away from us. Why? Because if she touched any of them, they would become unclean. If, they touched, if she touched their clothes, they would become unclean for the rest of the day. So she is trying to do this secretly because no one in the crowd would have wanted to be near her or be defiled by her. And furthermore, if she touched Jesus and he knew it, then she believed he was going to be unclean the rest of the day. And if he knows that, he's going to be mad at me. And Jairus had been desperate. Desperate for his little girl. And after weighing all the risks, he had thought about, should I leave her bedside right now? Should I really risk my reputation and go to Jesus? He decided that it was worth it. He decided, I'm going to go and I'm going to ask for Jesus' help. I'm going to ask him to come and lay his hands on her and heal her. He decided that it was worth it. This woman was trying to come to Jesus without anybody else knowing it. I'm going to do this in secret. Maybe Jesus won't even know. But I think I'll be healed. Not everybody has the same amount of faith. But Jesus responds to faith in him. No matter how much we have or don't have, no matter how well-informed and mature that faith is, he responds to faith in him. Verse 29, here's our word. Immediately, right away, 
the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. The source of her bleeding stopped. And when it says she felt, it's not just a warm emotional feeling. She felt, she, she knew by experience that the problem was gone. It had stopped bleeding inside. She knew that life was changing for her forever. Verse 30, we have another immediately. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, why did he turn around? Why did he deal with her publicly? Jesus, fully God, fully man. He knew who she was. He knew her name. He knew what was wrong with her. He knew why she was there. He knew she had touched him. He had allowed power to go out of him. It's not something he didn't know about. It caught him by surprise. He allowed her to be healed, but he didn't allow her to sneak off. Because he wanted to show her something. And I believe he wanted to show Jairus something. And I think he wanted to show us something. Because what if she had snuck off? Would Mark have written about this? <laughs> Only if the Holy Spirit told him about something he'd never seen or nobody had ever heard of. This is from Warren Wiersbe's commentary. For one thing, he stopped her for her own sake. He wanted to be to her something more than a healer. He wanted to be her savior. He wanted to be her friend. He wanted to have a relationship with her. We'll see that in a minute. He dealt with her publicly for the sake of Jairus. His daughter was close to death. He needed all the encouragement in his faith that he could get. He believed in Jesus' power and ability and authority enough to come prostrate himself before Jesus and beg him to come to his house. But the clock is ticking. So seeing, finding out that Jesus had healed her, was able to help this woman who has had this ailment for 12 years, would encourage Jairus in his faith. But furthermore, Jesus dealt with her publicly for the sake of the crowd and us so that we would have the opportunity to read about her testimony, about her willingness, eagerness to give God glory. So it says power had gone out of him. It's not that it left him, but he didn't know about it. He was doing this on purpose. He was healing her without letting her know that he knew she was there. And when he said, who touched my clothes? It's not that Jesus is wondering, well, who did that? He wasn't asking for information for his own sake. He was asking for her sake and everybody else's sake. Just like in the garden, God asks, Adam, where are you? It's not because he didn't know where Adam was. He wants Adam to know where Adam was. So he says, who touched me? To see what she's going to do. To see what she's going to do about it. And his disciples, in their typical form, just like we would have been, his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging, they're suffocating you, would be a paraphrase of that, and you ask, who touched me? Does he acknowledge their question? No. He just goes on, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing. He knew where she was. He looked right at her. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. We have person number three in this chapter now, coming and falling down, bowing before Jesus 
and it says, she told him the whole truth. She had been caught, if you will, and she had come and bowed down to show honor. But what is she going to do about it? She, she had the courage to come. Is she going to have the courage to confess what had happened? In the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, we read this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to be careful how I say this because it's, it's not an act that we have to do in order to be saved. That's not what the confession is. But if we believe in our hearts, we will confess with our mouth. If we believe with our hearts, we will confess with our mouth. We will tell others about it. And God has just done a miracle. Jesus has healed this woman, and she's going to tell people about it. People who believe in their heart will confess with their mouth. And she comes, and she's fearing and trembling. Again, Seems like over and over in the first part of this gospel, Mark keeps showing us the connection between fear and faith. And fear can lead to faith, the right kind of fear, the fear of God, leads to faith in God. And that's what happened to her. Why was she fearful? Why was she fearing and trembling? Well, she had stolen, if we can say it that way, she had stolen a healing, and she thinks she has made him unclean. And she thinks he's going to let her have it. How dare you touch me? How dare you think that you can be healed by me without my knowing? She may be bracing herself for a tongue lashing. So the woman came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She came to Jesus and told him what she had done. And I would say that that was her confession. And she came and she told what he had done for her, how he had healed her. And that was her testimony. So she's bearing witness of the change that Jesus had brought about in her life. If we're going to come to Jesus, we have to be willing to confess. We have to be willing to humble ourselves and tell him what we've done. God, I've broken your law. God, I've sinned against you. I know that you died for my sin. We have that type of confession. I know I quote this verse all the time, but 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a confession component, and then there's a testimony. Yes, this is what I did, but this is what he did. And I want to tell people about that. I want to tell others, he forgave me, he cleansed me, he's changed me. Jesus wanted to let this woman know that he knew about her healing. He wanted to let her know this isn't something you stole and is going to be taken away from you. This is something I did for you. This is something I gave to you. And no one's going to take it away. Give her that kind of assurance. Because look at the way he speaks to her. She's fallen at his feet. She doesn't know what's going to happen next. And verse 34 says, And he said to her, daughter do you know how many other people 
in the Gospels Jesus called daughter? Zero. He has a word of compassion for her and a word of relationship to prove to her it's all it's okay. It's okay. When one of your children comes to you or one of your adult children calls you on the phone, when that teenage son has to call his dad and say, I just wrecked the car. Might take a minute, right? But you're going to say, it's okay. It's okay, son. Are you all right? Now tell me about the car. He has a relationship with her. And this woman who has not had a normal family relationship in at least 12 years, has been estranged from her family, has been estranged from friends, society in general, and he says, daughter. And what else does he say to her? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. He wants her to understand this is your new relationship and this is what the rest of your life is going to look like. I saw a note in one of my study Bibles and I kind of ran with it here. Here's how I see this playing out. She went from the fringes of the crowd to the fringes of his his garment. And then she went from the fringes of his garment back into the crowd and then came to his feet. And she's fallen at his feet and where does she find herself now? She is in the family of God. She has a relationship with Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And when we are desperate enough to come to Jesus and cast our cares on him, and cast our eternity on him. He says to you, son, daughter, enter into my rest. I will save you. I will forgive you. I will give you an eternal home with me. That's good stuff. What else does he say to her? Your faith has made you well. It wasn't that you grabbed just the right tassel at just the right time. It's not that your superstitious beliefs about touching my clothes worked out for you. It's that your faith has made you well. When it says made you well, it's the same words that are translated elsewhere saved, as in saved from sin. You are saved completely. So let's understand again, what matters is not the person who expresses the faith or how much faith he or she has, but the object of that faith. Where are you placing your faith? Is it in Jesus? Is it in him alone? He says, go in peace, or literally go into peace or shalom, which kind of strengthens it a little bit because you can say go in peace and that's like saying have a good day. But no, go into peace. Dwell, abide in my peace for the rest of your days. Be healed of your affliction. This isn't just making you better for the moment and next week it's going to start up again. It's gone. We see that over and over. People who've been paralyzed can walk. It's not that they fall down the next day. He heals, he restores completely. Now, all of this is great, except there's somebody else standing over here maybe tapping his foot a little bit, right? 
We can't forget about Jairus. He's part of this story. I read this in David Guzik's commentary. God is never slow, but he often seems slow to the sufferer. It seems like, oh, are you ever going to heal me? Are you ever going to relieve me of whatever this is? And then we get the news. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine what went through his mind? What happened in his heart? The sinking feeling in his chest and his stomach. But he was coming. I believed he was going to heal her. What right did this woman have to be healed when he was coming to heal my daughter? What went through his mind? I know some of the things that would have been going through my mind. So immediately Jesus reassures him. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Jesus heard the word that was spoken. That can mean overheard, or it can even mean ignored. He wasn't concerned about that, because he knew all along that he was going to raise her from death. Jairus didn't know that. Jairus hadn't read the chapter. I know in some ways these gospel accounts seem like old news to us. But when you put yourself in the story and realize he didn't know what was going to happen. Do not be afraid. Only believe. I said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. The antidote to fear, the cure for fear is faith. The opposite of fear is also faith. The antidote, the cure. What do we need when we are fearful? We need to trust God. Literally, it says, stop fearing, one-time act, just keep on believing. Imperfect, continuing. They hadn't read the rest of the chapter. They didn't know what we know, that Jesus defeated death, that Jesus came out of the tomb three days after his death. David Jeremiah put it this way, because of Jesus, death never has the last word. Verse 37 says, he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So now he dismisses the crowd. Again, if I had been Jairus, I would have thought, why didn't you do that before? We could have made so much better progress, even with all your disciples, we could have gotten through. Jesus had a different agenda. Jesus knew that it was his father's will to heal the woman in the crowd. So now he dismisses the crowd and takes only three of his disciples. Why only three? Why those three? I don't know. I can tell you the three. How many witnesses did you need? According to Old Testament law, you needed two or three witnesses to establish something. So that's part of it. But why those three? Somebody said, well, maybe he knew those three just needed him to keep his eye on them because they were going to get into trouble if he left them. But these are the three that we'll see throughout the rest of this gospel and you see in the other gospel accounts. 
that they were an inner circle. They were the closest disciples. They got to see some things like the transfiguration that nobody else got to. Verse 38 says that then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. So the, the grammar suggests that he comes to the doorway of the house. He arrives at the house. He hasn't gone in yet. And it is chaos to our ears. It's normal for them. Because the weeping and wailing, they're professional mourners. People who are actors, actresses, probably more actresses, who come and they scream and they cry and they kind of get the crowd worked up. Why? Because in any funeral setting, even in our culture, if people are grieving, if people are crying, that's because they loved the person very much. Also, in that culture, in that time, you buried the same day, generally, that the person died. So you don't have a lot of time. You don't have the newspaper. You don't have the internet to let everybody know about the, okay, here are the funeral arrangements. No, it's, here's the funeral. She's dead. We're burying her. We need everybody who wants to grieve to come. And remember, Jairus is well known in the community. So he would have hired, the, the bare minimum was you had to have two pl flute players and a crier, a mourner. And he probably had a lot more than that. So it is bedlam. It is noisy, people screaming and shrieking and wailing. And that's what Jesus comes into. When he came in, he said to them, verse 39, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now he had been, the, the child had been pronounced dead, if we look at Luke 8.53. But why is Jesus saying sleeping? Because it's temporary. He knows how temporary it is in this case. But that, throughout the New Testament, we often read sleep used as a euphemism, a synonym for death. Paul used that word in 1 Corinthians 15, that at the moment of death for a believer, the body sleeps, but the spirit is present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We understand that. The soul does not sleep. The soul is present with the Lord. But the body is asleep. The body on this earth, this earth suit, decomposes. Verse 40, and they ridiculed him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. They laughed him to scorn, and he says, out. And it's a very forceful word that Mark used here. He put them outside. This is an expulsion. This is the same word that has previously been used in Mark for drove, sent, and particularly demons or Satan being driven out, being forced out. So I don't know what it looked like. I think it would have been fun to see. But Jesus cleared the room. It's the same terminology used when he drove the money changers from the temple in all four Gospels. Verse 41, he's gone into this inner room. Who's with him? The mother, the father, three disciples, Peter, James, John. Five people plus Jesus plus the dead child. Seven people in the room. Six living, one dead. Then he took the little child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. So he took her by the hand. We read that, we think, oh, that's nice. He took. No, she's dead. What did that mean in their culture, in their law? That defiles him. She is making him unclean. It's a second time today. Now, is it making Jesus unclean? It is not. But that's what they would have expected. He's not afraid of 
uncleanness because he, instead of becoming unclean when the woman touched his garments, he makes her clean. He restores her and makes her well. Instead of this dead body of the little girl making him unclean, he brings her back to life. So he takes her by the hand and he says, these are Aramaic words, suggests that Peter told Mark exactly what Jesus said, the, the exact words he said. Literally, it is little lamb or youth, little girl, arise, get up. I mentioned in our scripture reading, there are three people, individuals, Jesus raised from the dead. And it's interesting that one was an only son, this one was an only daughter, we know that from Luke, and the other one was Lazarus, we read about, an only brother. And each time, how did he raise them? He spoke. In this case, he took her by the hand and spoke. And he raised her from the dead. Verse 42, immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and that something should be given her to eat. So she got up, she started walking around and again, the grammar says she continued walking around. She probably was going to each person in the room and telling them about it and what what did she see and what was it like? And they were overcome by great amazement. One translation of that was, out of their minds with great amazement. They are, they don't even know what to do. They cannot process this. She was dead. We know she was dead. And she's alive and she's walking around. And what does Jesus say? This time we're back to, don't tell anybody. At least not right away. That was probably for the privacy of the family. It was certainly so that he could get to a different area rather than the multitude he just dismissed. They're going to descend on this house if anybody knows about it right away. So he says, don't tell anybody. Again, that was related to the fact that it was not yet his time, and it was not the place, and it wasn't the means. If they decided, we're going to make him king, that's a problem. If they decide to stone him, that's a problem. He is going to be crucified. He's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified when it's time. And none of that was true yet. And very practically, we end with this idea that something should be given her to eat. She's been sick. We don't know how, and we don't know how long but she's been sick, so give the girl some food. It also tells us that she's 12 years old, because as I read the story, I would imagine she's a very little girl, like a two or three year old, but she's a 12 year old girl. That's interesting as well, that the woman had her issue of blood for 12 years, this girl is 12 years old. And there was also a belief, a superstition, if you will, at the time, that ghosts could not eat. So to prove that she's real and she's restored to life, give her something to eat, she'll eat it. She needs it for her body because she is back from the dead. So what have we seen? If we take last week and this week together, Jesus is in control. If if we could go back one more week beyond that to the storm, he's in control of nature. He's in control of the spirit world. He's in control of the physical world. Death, no problem for him. Disease, 12 years, no problem to him. But when does he choose to work? in his time, and when people come to him with faith in him. All of the individuals in these stories, the demoniac from last week, Jairus, the woman with the issue of blood, they found hope and they found healing in Jesus. And so can you. There are no hopeless cases with Jesus. 
Zero. The points for this section today, Jesus is not hindered by sickness or uncleanness or death. Anyone can come to Jesus at any time by faith. The question is, will we? Jesus saves by faith in him. The object of our faith is much more important than how much we understand or how much faith we think we have. It's about Jesus. It's about the object of our faith. And then Jesus heals and restores according to his own plan and timing. It is not always his will to heal in this life. It is certainly not always his will to bring people back from the dead. But those who are believers in him, we will. We will rise in his time. So anyone in the room, online, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, if you have not come to him, for salvation. He's inviting you. You come to him in faith. You're not a hopeless case. There are none. But you believe in him, he will receive you. He will make you his son or his daughter. And believers, you are not a hopeless case. No matter what you've done, haven't done, whatever your life looks like, it's not hopeless to Jesus. You can come to him. You can come back to him. He will welcome you. But some of you may be in a trial right now. Maybe it's 12 years. Maybe it's 12 months. I don't know. But it feels hopeless to you. And he may not choose to heal you in this lifetime. He may not choose to remove the trial from you in this lifetime. But whether he does or not, what is the instruction that he gave to Jairus? Stop fearing, keep on believing. Don't fear, only believe. Keep on believing in me. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are a trustworthy, kind, compassionate God, and that nothing is too hard for you. And we know that in our minds, and we can say that with our lips, but would you please help us to believe that in our hearts? that nothing is too hard for you. Nothing shall be impossible with God. Lord, I pray for the one who may feel hopeless. Maybe nobody else knows about it. But there is someone who does not have victory. There may be someone who does not yet have your salvation. Lord, you invite us to come. We need to come and fall at your feet and submit ourselves to your mercy. So may we do that today. May we obey what your Holy Spirit is leading us to do. May people find hope and help from you. You are the great physician, Lord, and you are the resurrection and the life. May we find our peace and rest and hope in you, in Jesus' name, amen.